and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, as you know very well, the IMF has always loomed very large as a presence in Africa. For those of you not familiar, it's the International Monetary Fund. And for decades, the IMF played this... This, you know, again, it, it's hard to describe to people who don't live in Africa the, the importance of these big international NGOs like the World Bank and the IMF, in part because for a long time, they were the ones with the massive checkbooks that did the big debt refinancing programs. They built the big infrastructure programs. Then somewhere around the mid-2000s, uh, you know, some folks from Beijing started showing up in Africa, and they whipped out their big checkbook, and it really started to kind of send shivers down the spines of all those bureaucrats in places like Washington and Brussels and London. And there's one particular instance that we're going to focus on today, which is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and it's about a very, very big deal worth, at the time, somewhere between 6 and $9 billion, and we'll get the numbers sorted out later. But the idea here was that this sent shockwaves through the international financial community because it really demonstrated that China was, you know, in Africa to play for real. And Kobus, we can almost date back to this deal in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the beginning of some of these narratives that we have talked about for so many years on the show of China kind of taking over Africa, of China buying Africa, of China enslaving the new imperialism, all of these wonderful memes, many of them date back to this deal and, and, what, it, and what effect it had. And really, it, it's such a fascinating kind of you know, foundational piece of the China-Africa narrative. Absolutely. The the deal, you know, kind of set, set a lot of... of um, of mechanisms made them kind of mainstream. Um, a, a, a key one being um, uh, resource low, resource-backed loans. Uh, you know, which are massive loans that are repaid um, not in cash or um, but but paid through a future explore. You know, future um, extracted products um, like oil, for example. Um, so you know, it, it raised a lot of fears about what what effect uh, fluctuations in prices are going to have on African economies. And more specifically, in this case, it raised also fears about debt levels. So at the time, which was going back all the way to 2007, somewhere between 2007, 2011, when this deal known as the Sycamines deal, and it's, you know, around $6 billion, again, it started at nine, was then kind of dialed down to about $6 billion. At the time, the IMF said, nah, this is not a big deal. We're not challenged and threatened by China. After all, China is, of course, a member of the IMF. But there's a new report that came out, and it kind of says a very different story. And we're going to go now to Stockholm, Sweden, where we're joined on the line once again to a regular on our show, Dr. Johanna Malm, who wrote the report as part of her dissertation for her PhD at the Department of Social Sciences and Business at Roskilde University in Denmark. Welcome back to the show, and congratulations on your dissertation, Johanna. Thank you very much, Eric. So we've talked, and people can go back and look through our archives. On You've been on the show a couple times talking about the Sicko Means deal. We've talked about the kind of the magnitude and the importance of it and kind of the, the nuts and bolts of it. So I'm going to spare that part of our discussion and really recommend that people look, and we'll put links in our show notes to those shows where you kind of break down what the Sicko Means deal. I don't want to focus on that because that's going to take away from our discussion about the IMF. And your research that you focused on, and you're really the only one who's doing this depth of research on this, really shows, 
either intentional or unintentional duplicity on the part of the IMF, which ultimately cost the Congolese, you know, a lot of money. Give us the headline of what your research found. I think um, when I started my work on the IMF, I... I at first thought like everyone else, you know, and, and this is in 2010, 2011, that the settlement of the Sikumin, the controversy around Sikumin, uh, that, you know, it happened in 2009, the deal was settled, the DRC got debt relief. And the main story there was that the DRC, the IMF had forced the DRC to renegotiate the deal so that it became concessional and was compatible with the debt relief stop, process. Hold on, let me so just stop the, you there. What does concessional mean? That's a very good question, Eric. Thank you for stopping me there. Concessional <laughs> finance is um, is a loan on aid terms. So that means that it's, uh, well, cheap enough. And this is, of course, uh, a judgment call, but just that it's considered cheap enough to be seen as development aid and not commercial finance. Yeah, that's a very good quality. Sorry about that. Some of those, some of these development terms get a little confusing for those of us not in the business. Very, very good that you stopped me on that one. But continue so, though on on what you were saying about the IMF. Right. So, so that was the main story that the IMF had forced the DRC to negotiate the deal with the Chinese companies and the bank, and it was now concessional. However, when I started looking into this and I was talking to people in the DRC, um, to people at, uh, you know, the debt office and the finance ministry, and I was looking in deeper into the terms of the deal and, you know, talking to people and reading and thinking long and hard about this, the way you have the time to do when you're a PhD student, it, it became quite clear that this is not actually... True. This it wasn't true that this is a concessional loan. The way the IMF states. Um, actually, I went through and I have a whole chapter on this, chapter six in my thesis, where I show that actually they have calculated this very generously. They because this is a very special structure of this deal, as Kobus was saying. It's a financing arrangement which involves, um, well, it is repaid in cash, but it involves um, security in a natural resource transaction. And part of this deal is that, well, one of the things that the IMF didn't calculate is that there are tax exemptions as part of the deal, which means that as, as long as this loan was being repaid by means of the profit from the mining project that was involved in the deal, uh, the Chinese company or the the Chinese uh, well the Chinese Congolese um, consortium would not pay taxes in Congo. This can be significant resources. I mean, it's as I write in the thesis, it's very difficult to estimate how much these tax exemptions are worth because tax payments are always um, you know a, uh, it's always a negotiation in Congo, but it's a, it, it's potentially a lot of money. And the IMF did not factor that into the cost of the loan, which I argued that it should. Um, and the IMF also did not you know, calculate, didn't calculate the grace period because it, it. I mean, the grace period is the period um, between when, um, well, from the loans being disbursed to the period to the time when it's being reimbursed, when the reimbursement starts. That's the grace period, and the IMF put that to 25 years. Whereas I argue that this loan is starting to be reimbursed at the time when 
the joint venture starts to benefit from tax exemptions because that's a cost to the Congolese state, which gives it a much shorter grace period. And these are all exemptions. And I'm not, I mean, this is all um, assumptions, sorry. So I'm not arguing in the dissertation that I have a fixed, you know, kind of alternative um, cost for the loan or concessionality rate. But I'm just pointing at the fact that the IMF made a very generous calculation. They the cost of the loan is far from what they argue. It's much more expensive for Congo. So that's basically, so, it gets very technical, but I think sometimes you have to get to to take on the IMF and or their way of thinking and doing things. You have to become quite technical. So, you know, kind of at the danger of sounding incredibly dumb, um, why would the IMF want to do this? As, as far as I understand, the IMF had, uh, you know, there, there was a, 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 as as I read that history, there was a struggle, you know, like a kind of a public struggle for influence between the IMF and China. And so why, why, did, they, why did the IMF want to make the loan look more more kind than it actually was rather than making it look worse than it was? Yeah, that's actually an excellent question, Gobos. And I think there are two reasons for this. I think the main reason uh, is that the IMF wanted to help the DRC to get debt relief because it's ultimately the IMF's judgment call um, whether or not a country is ready for debt relief because the donors, they heed the IMF's call on this. If the big, I mean, the, the U.S. and France and the U.K., the big creditors, um, they were going to listen to the IMF. If the IMF said, yes, guys, this is fine, um, look, the China deal is now concessional, we can go ahead with debt relief, that's what they would do. However, if the IMF would say, let's hold off, they would hold off. And the IMF wanted to help the DRC, so they framed the deal as concessional. And that means then the donors, donors accepted, and uh, half a year after the Sikomin deal was renegotiated, DRC got debt relief. So that's one reason. But the other reason, and I argue that, and this is part of the main argument about China challenging the IMF's power, is that the IMF's own debt sustainability requirements, I mean, their preference and their ideas, and normative ideas about how a developing country should structure their public debt, that's an important uh, part of their power. The IMF has, and I think you did an excellent job, Eric, at um, explaining this in the introduction that the IMF really the, the presence looms you know on the continent it has a big influence in terms of uh, well in, in terms of many aspects but that's one of the things how should you structure your debt how do you how should developing countries think about the relation between debt and development the IMF has one position on this and that is that Concessional finance, cheap loans, should be um, low-income countries' main source of, of public debt, depending on their income, of course, on how, or how low, low income they are. However, in China, and China Exim Bank specifically, but the other Chinese financial institutions, there is a different view on how developing countries should use debt for their development. So the relation between debt and development is thought of differently. And this has been the President Li of China Exim Bank has been um, vocally advocating this, also criticizing the IMF and the World Bank for what he argues is a, a too conservative way of using debt to say that countries need to have debt relief before they can access new finance. He thinks it's wrong. He thinks that hampers development. The countries need 
they need to have debt relief, but they also need to have access to 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 fresh finance coming in. So this, uh, um, sorry to interrupt you. This really gets to the crux of the kind of the the difference of opinion between. And I'll use the cliche here between the Washington consensus, which in many ways is defined by the IMF and the World Bank and the, the Beltway institutions in, in Washington, D.C., and what's known as the Beijing consensus, which in many ways is what you've talked about, which is a, a very different view not only on, on financing but also on development as a whole. So this in, – in the time that we're talking about, which is the mid to late 2000s, the IMF back then was still very much a, a Western American-driven institution. For those of you not familiar, there's been this kind of division of power in the Bretton Woods organizations where a European is always nominated to head the World Bank and an American is always headed to nominated to head the International Monetary Fund. Well, that was all decided before China became the world's second largest economy. And so China's share of the world of the IMF has gone up, but its influence hasn't. And I think we can date some of the tensions that have been between China and the IMF that go back to, in part, to some of these deals. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, this this philosophical clash that occurs between the way you've outlined how the Chinese view debt financing and how the IMF views debt financing, in some ways, does that offer Africans like Joseph Kabila, the president of the DRC, the choice to play one off the other, and is that what he successfully did? Well, I think there's one. I think you're right, but there's an important qualifier here, and that is um, the fragmentation of Chinese foreign policy making. Because at the IMF in Washington, the Chinese executive director's office there, their um, only um, main ambition is to further China's role as a responsible. Uh, stakeholder in international politics. So, and that's, I also show that in my dissertation, um, that nobody at the IMF has ever heard the Chinese executive director's office criticize the IMF's um, debt sustainability framework or their, the IMF's approach to the relation between debt and development. This is something that comes from the commercial banks, from China Exim Bank, which is a policy bank, but has mainly commercial, I mean, it does have commercial and a political mandate, but um, but it, it is in no way a non-commercial bank. And the other financial institutions, they have this view on uh, the relation between debt and development, but this, the central bank people um, that represent China at the IMF in Washington, they have not furthered this, uh, this view, you know. So there's also an important, I, I wouldn't go as far as to argue, I mean, this is difficult, right, because we want to say, it's easy to say it's China, but it actually isn't. This is a part of, uh, of the actors active in Chinese foreign policy making. So that's the, just a qualifier to say, yes, there's, there's, um, there's a difference and it's tangible, but this does not represent, you know, China Inc. or something. There are differences between Chinese actors. So that's just um, a rather long. Yeah, and that's a fair point. And, and that's something that actually you can even make the argument for any major government like the United States as well, where GE, even though it's not a state-owned entity, or even the American Exim Bank, don't necessarily reflect policy that's made in Washington on behalf of the State Department. Those are sometimes in conflict right. with one another. And so I guess that's – and the point that you're trying to make here is that just to, to refresh everybody, because this is a little bit technical, so it's hard, it might be hard for a lot of our listeners to follow along. SICO means the deal was financed not by the government but by the state-owned banks, which, again, are not necessarily in line with 
the foreign policy of China per se. Is that correct? Um, it is in line. Well, broadly, I think I think one has to distinguish between you know they are all of the actors that are involved in Chinese foreign policy making. So there's banks and companies and government departments. They are part of of Chinese government policy on this, and they follow it, but not always. Sometimes they have their own agenda. Uh, there are principal agent problems, you know, just like any, as you're saying, as any uh, any government really. Um, so there are instances where companies, uh, the state-owned companies in China, go against government policy, or there are other cases where they further their policy. But this is this is contested. It's a political field, basically. So yeah, that's just a qualifier, actually, to say that um, to get on to the question that you were asking about Kabila and how if he was managing to make them play them off each other, I think, I wouldn't, I mean, not in a Cold War kind of way, you know, uh, not this kind of switching game. It's slightly different in the sense that they do very different things. Um, In this specific instance, I think Kabila successfully uh, played the game so that he could get both the China deal as as it's popularly called, and debt relief. It should be noted but, that uh, that Kabila, it's reported by Africa Confidential, which is a London-based news organization, that Kabila uh, received an estimated $350 million in uh, bribes for this deal. I mean, that that's the number that circulates. So in many ways, mm. knowing Joseph Kabila, he didn't play them off each other for any ideological reason. He played them off of who he could get more money in cash and put his own pocket. Yeah, I can't really comment on, on, on bribes because I haven't researched that and that's so difficult to access, you know, any information on that. But just politically, I mean, I'm sure, so I'll just leave it at that. I'm sure Africa Confidential has their... Um, their sources on that. Sources, right. So, but but what for, me, for me, politically, just, just to say that, for me politically, I think it, it means something um, that he was able to play them off. I mean, it's not just resources to put in your own pocket. Apart from that, this is a political victory for Kabila in that he could access this deal so that he could use the money that was brought in to finance infrastructure. I mean, not not just money in the pocket, but money to actually construct infrastructure projects. That was a major political victory for him. And to get debt relief was also a political victory for him. So it's not just... Uh, bribes or corruption. It's also a political uh, game. But after that, and that's what I wanted to get to with your question, Eric, is he playing them off each other? Because after the Sikomin deal was signed and renegotiated, we haven't seen any other such challenges from the Chinese side to the debt sustainability framework. Um, Because, and that's what I argue in the dissertation, other Chinese corporate actors, I'm sure, saw the kind of problems that Sinoidro and uh, China Railway Engineering Corporation had in Congo, and China, but I mean China Exim Bank, and that I show also in the thesis and in some earlier publications, pulled out of this deal because they thought it was too risky. So this has not been a walk in the park for them, and and I, I think that that's why we haven't seen the similar kind of financing arrangement come in. We do see a big Chinese presence in the mining sector. Um, we see uh, Chinese companies buying up stakes in companies that operate in Katanga. So there are big Chinese kind of transactions going on, but not these kinds of loans. 
So I'm just saying that this enabled Kabila to play it off as a one a one-time thing, but this hasn't been uh, something that has continued. Simply, I argue, because it's too risky, uh, but because these Chinese actors are in it for commercial reasons, and it just doesn't make commercial sense, I think, to them. So, um, you know, kind of according, so Kabila got the deal, and he got debt relief. Um, how do those two things balance out for the, for the Congolese, for you know, no, except outs, you know, outside of his his personal kind of position, how does it shake out for the country? Like, you know, kind of, are they did did they end up having to now pay back more than they thought they were going to have to pay back? I think debt in Congo is is a complicated matter in the sense that uh, before debt relief, I mean, the bilateral and multilateral debt was forgiven in two thousand and nine. No, 2010, sorry. The the Congo wasn't really paying a lot of that debt. They were paying back to the IMF and the World Bank because they had to, but none of the bilateral debt. That was basically virtual debt at that point. They just weren't paying it. So in terms of the budget, it made some difference. You know, of course, there were um, some resources relieved and that were going to be used towards pro-poverty spending. Um, but... As, as regards Sikumin, and that's my argument that this deal is more expensive than was than the IMF shown. It's just that I, and that's the argument I I, uh, I find important to put forward because if the Congolese people now thought this was a concessional loan of a 42% concessionality rate, which is high, which would indicate that this is a cheap loan, I argue that it's around 15%, which is lower, uh, which means it's more expensive, and they won't have to. As just to answer your question, Kobus, they won't have to pay it back in the sense that this is not money that's going to come into the budget and then go out again in a in a in a in a loan payment. But this is money that will not come into the state coffers as profit or as all these different um, taxes and. Uh, uh, royalties that come from the mining sector because that money will be used to pay back the loan. So basically, that's, that's a long story just to say that the, there will be less resources coming from the mining sector in terms of taxes and, and royalties than it would have if the loan would have been cheaper. Um, it gets very technical, so please ask me follow-up questions because sure. it's difficult to convey. I think this is also the reason why the IMF can just make this kind of generous calculation and then nobody actually looks into it because, it's, it's hard it, you to know, follow. this takes time. It, it, it's actually hard to follow it's very and, hard and people to just don't do it. And IMF has a big, like a, an expert position. People do not very often challenge the IMF. The IMF, you can see it when they come to Sweden, everyone convenes to listen to what the IMF has to say about the Swedish economy. They, they are the experts, you know. And so to for someone to go in and say, hey, you know, guys, this is not... This doesn't make sense. That just doesn't happen unless you're a PhD student with a lot of time on your hands, you know? Yeah, or, um, you know, someone someone like me who's kind of, you know, I lived in Kinshasa during this time. And I remember at the time there was this sense of excitement that the IMF was being challenged and that the IMF, there was an alternative to the IMF. And if you recall, 
you know, as somebody who's lived in Asia as well for a long time, I was in, in Asia in the, for the 1990s economic crisis. And there's that famous picture of the former IMF director, and I forget his name, with his arms crossed sitting over the South Korean president signing the structural adjustment deals in the wake of the 1997-1998 yeah. financial crisis. And that really crystallized the arrogance of the IMF. And the duality of IMF policy, which is for emerging markets and non-Western markets, it was always kind of structural adjustment. It was very strict kind of, you know, reorientation of the economy, not putting in a lot of liquidity, you know, a lot, Mm. a lot. Mm. And and then yet for Western countries, boy, it just – the money just flowed. And there was always Mm. this kind of hypocrisy that was there. And it just offends me to no end to see, you know, that the IMF, as you said, goes unchallenged, much like the World Bank. And so now that the Chinese – are playing this massive role in finance, in debt, in infrastructure. These were the roles that were traditionally left to the World Bank and the IMF. Um, It's exciting in one sense that at least there's choice and at least there's an alternative. But Cobus, when you listen to all the things that Johanna is saying, I have to be honest with you, my head is spinning a little bit uh, because it is so hard, it is so technical, and it's really what flies in the face of what we talked about at the top of the show, these very simplistic narratives about the Chinese in Africa, which many are born from this very deal. And it just shows you, I think, in many ways how this deal and the, the, the narratives, the stereotypes, the caricatures that are allegedly linked to it uh, are just wrong. And I think this is one of the reasons why the China-Africa relationship is sometimes so difficult for people like Hillary Clinton to to pass. Um, you know, kind of before before we started recording, we were talking, you know, just American politics, and and we we made the point that that she has been following a, a very simplistic, like neo-colonialist kind of narrative about China and Africa, and I think. You know, if you're not in Africa, then then you don't you don't you know the, these people come from such a position of power that they can't think of themselves as the way that Africans frequently think of them, which is as, as a form of overlord. You know, so I think a, a, a very important aspect to to the China-Africa relationship is this excitement in Africa to be away from the Bretton Woods institutions or to to see them. To see them kind of like to to see an alternative emerging to them, you know, kind of in, in some kind of way. And I mean, as I was listening to Johanna, I was also wondering very naively again, it's like what recourse does a country like that have? You know, kind of you know, kind of if if it comes out that the IMF, you know, that that it was this kind of loan was misrepresented in some kind of way. Like you know, kind of, it's it's almost like trying to sue the clouds. You know, kind of, there's 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 yeah. there's no nothing that you can do as a country, essentially. No, there's nothing you can do. Um, obviously, also, I think, and the the reason why I really wanted to make this a important point of my dissertation is that this is a democracy issue. I mean, the Congolese people deserve to know this, and because they're government wasn't, or I wouldn't say the government, Kabila, the circle around Kabila wasn't providing the Congolese people with information around the deal or, or you know, helping the people in any way to assess what the terms of this was that the country is signing up to. And the IMF, I think, I mean, I have to give them that. They did this generous calculation, as I call it, or the silent compromise to help the DRC get debt relief. I have to give them that. That's a good thing. The country needed debt relief. But it's also a problem that they don't have the the people does don't have the correct information about this. And 
No, you can't have resource to recourse to anything. The country has the loan. I'm not arguing necessarily that this is a bad deal. I still think it can be a good deal, if you ask me. But that depends on a whole next level, and that is how are the infrastructure projects that this loan is going to finance? How are they implemented? How are they monitored? You know, the implementation, and will they be maintained? And that is nothing different. Um, I mean, Chinese project or World Bank funded projects or any other project. It's difficult to maintain roads in Congo, right? But so it all depends. It, I, I'm not arguing, and this is important that in my dissertation, that this is a bad deal. I'm arguing that this has to be monitored. But what it is, is that it shows the kind of way that the IMF exercises its power, how it uses its expertise to to, you know, put his narrative across and that nobody challenges them because nobody has the expertise or the time or finds it necessary. So it might, it, this is it's an interesting way in which this, um, that the Sikomin agreement and the controversy around it tells us something very important about how the IMF exercises power. People always say that the IMF is political, but it's very difficult to pin it down. You know, but I actually do pin it down here, and I, I think that's why it, it's really exciting. I mean, you can hear I get excited. No, <laughs> it is exciting, and and I just have to say that if you know, we have a lot of students who listen to the show every week, and and, and you know, and I think if you are a student of China Africa in any level, you're going to want to understand the Sicko Mines deal in part because it is just so foundational to the broader China Africa story, and also how China interacts with the international organizations like the IMF. It, but yeah. in so many ways, this story touches on, you know, all aspects of the China-Africa relationship. It touches on corruption. It touches on resource extraction, on debt, on, you know, on, on going to very risky, the countries that the West had given up on for a long time with these massive deals. And it's just, it is one of the most complex, most fascinating stories in the China-Africa narrative. The, the dissertation it's highly technical. This is not bedtime reading, um, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. This is not Howard French type of writing, uh, but it is very. And, and by the way, that's no no diss against Howard French because I fear I'm going to get a Twitter storm if in reaction. But I love the book, Howard. I really do. Uh, but uh, it's when Chinese <laughs> development finance met the IMF's public debt norm in the DR Congo. And if that sounds like a dissertation title, it's because it is. Uh, that was the. PhD dissertation by now Dr. Johanna Malm, who joins us from uh, from Stockholm. Uh, listen, congratulations again on the on the dissertation. If people want to read it, where can they go to download it? Um, they can go to uh, Roskilde University um, or just Google Johanna Malm dissertation Congo, and you will come to my webpage at Roskilde University, and you can download it from there. And um, we'll also have a link on our site on, on the show page. So if you're listening to this, not on the China Africa Project website, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com, look for this particular show, and I'll put it in the show notes so that everybody can, can listen to it. Congratulations. I think uh, it's an amazing piece of work, complicated, but absolutely fascinating, and we're so happy to have you back on the show again. Thank you very much. And Kobus, you and I will be back again very soon with another edition of the show. On behalf of Kobus Van Staden, in St in, not in Stockholm, in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast.
The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com/chinaafricaproject to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every 4 hours, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The guys are also on Twitter where you can find Kobus at @stadnesk or Eric at @eolander. That's E O L A N D E R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.